Well, good morning again. Um, I'm Robin, one of the pastors here. It's really uh, great to welcome you. I just want to give you a real quick announcement before we uh, jump into our message this morning. Um, we're doing an event on the last weekend of January called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And it's if you are relatively new to our church, chances are you come into the worship center on Sunday and you look around and you say, most of these people aren't familiar to me. If you've attended this church your whole life, chances are you enter into this room on a Sunday and you look around and say, very few of these people look familiar to me. Our church has changed so much in the last number of months, and uh, this event is kind of going to be used to introduce you to your church family, uh, because I know that many of you are, are looking and really want to get to know people and have that opportunity, so we're planning this event. It's, takes, it's got two parts to it. First of all, we're simply looking for people to open their homes uh, and to welcome other people to come and to share a meal together after church on January 29th. Um, I would think if you're going to be a host, you want to invite somebody to join you that you already know that can help you with the hosting, who can help with the conversation, and then figure out how many seats you have left in your, around your table that you can seat people comfortably, and then register, and then we will help, we will fill those seats for you. Uh, and then for those of you who say, I don't want to host, but would love to participate, then simply you register as a participant. And then you are going to make something. It's going to be a potluck dinner, so everybody contributes to the meal. And that might mean a bag of Tostitos and a jar of salsa. Or maybe it's a favorite dish that you already know how to make and really enjoy. It's not a competition, a cooking competition. Just bring something to contribute to the meal. The point is to get people around a table and have the opportunity to get to know one another. We know this won't get, fix any problems forever, but it'll be a start, hopefully, to allow you to get to meet some people that are your church family. And if nothing else, when you show up on a Sunday morning, you'll know the names and faces and stories of a few more people than you did the week before. Now, we need you to register for this event um, so that we can help pair you up. At this point, we have way more hosts than we have participants. So we need some participants, people who think, oh, I don't know that I want to host, but I'd love to go to someone else's house. They can clean their house, uh, they can get ready to host, and you go there, uh, bring a meal and go with them. So if you would do that, I would, that would be greatly appreciated. Sooner than later, it will help us um, get all the preparations and all the communications and details figured out well in advance of that day. So we would look forward to it, and we hope uh, that you would be willing to, to participate in it. So I want to start by telling you a little bit of a story today. Um, they were not the words that I expected to hear uh, when I was visiting somebody at the cardiac care unit here at the St. John Regional Hospital. It was a gentleman in his 50s. He'd had a serious heart attack. Uh, he was there in the bed. His wife was concerned. She was with him, and then their young adult daughter was there as well. Uh, he had had a significant heart attack. He was going to be okay. Uh, but everybody was just sitting there in the rawness of that moment. And the dad said something, and I was surprised at the words that he's used. Now, I've heard them since. I've heard them at other times when I visited with people uh, who've had similar situations. But his phrase was this. This heart attack is the best thing that could have ever happened to me. It saved my life. This heart attack was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. It saved my life. It was a, a moment of reflection after a very serious incident. And he told me the story about how he had kind of graduated from university and set his sights on his career, and it was all career. 
He had goals and aspirations and he pursued them as the number one priority of his life. His wife and daughter admitted that they got the leftovers of his time. He also ignored his health. He did not eat well. He drank too much. And he said of his spiritual life that, you know, he attended church when he had nothing else on. And that when he was there, he was just there. I came, I sat, I left. He didn't worship. He didn't participate. He didn't really take much in. And he said, you know, other people looking at me throughout my life, and I felt this way a little bit as well, would look at my life and they would think, look at him rising on up. He's got a great career. He's done well for himself. He's got a wonderful family. He's a part of a church community. But the reality was the whole time his life was sinking. It was sinking to a very, very low place. And his reflection was, this heart attack was the best thing that could have ever happened to me, that it saved my life. Well, we're, last week we started a series on the little book of Jonah, a prophetic book in the Old Testament. It's punchy, it's edgy, uh, it's comical at times, uh, it's unique, it's fascinating, it's brilliantly written, and it's filled with subtleties and nuance that require us to really dive in and read it again and again in order to get the best of it. And I said last week that so often this story gets missed because if I say to you, hey, what's the story of Jonah? You say, oh, Jonah and the whale. It's not a whale. It's a big fish. Uh, But it's Jonah and the whale. And it's the story about a guy who doesn't do what God wants, so God punishes him by swallowing him with a big fish to get him to do what he wants, which is theologically not true. And I hope as we go through the series, that will kind of get purged from your memory, because the message of the book is profound. It's the story of the mercy of God for merciless people. It's a story about the mercy of God for a merciless people and how God calls you and I as his people to be the messengers of that mercy to a merciless and lost world. And in this context, Jonah is the messenger, and the people that he's to take that message to are the Ninevites. The Ninevites were the most merciless people of that time. They were part of the kingdom of Assyria. They dominated that region for over 300 years. They were the first terror state. They were gruesome and horrific in the way they treated their enemies. And they believed that the power of a nation was marked by the size of its cities. And so they would take the people when they conquered other cities, they would take their people and dump them into their cities, creating huge multi-ethnic, multi-language, multi-faith melting pots as part of their cities. And Jonah was called to go and to preach to the city of Nineveh. There's two problems. First... He was scared for his life, and rightfully so. These were nasty people. Secondly, he hated the Assyrians, and he did not think they were worthy of the grace of God. So instead of going, Jonah goes to the exact opposite direction, 2,500 miles, and ironically, Jonah, the missionary, ends up on a boat filled with people of different ethnicities and different faiths. And a storm comes and the people become very afraid. They start asking very spiritual questions. And in the midst of this multi-ethnic, multi-faith community, asking all kinds of spiritual questions, Jonah, the missionary, is sound asleep. It gets to the point that the sailors throw Jonah overboard. The sea is calmed and the sailors are converted accidentally by Jonah. 
And now in chapter 1, there's a word that appears again and again that kind of captures the trajectory of Jonah's life. And it's the word meaning to descend or to, to go down. Because Jonah thinks he's running away from God. I'm having my own way. I fooled him. I'm going to do my own thing. But the reality is he's sinking the whole time. Jonah goes down to Joppa, down to the port, down to the boat, down into a sleep, and eventually down into the sea. He's sinking. His life is sinking. Now, a modern person, we might look at Jonah and say, you're doing it right. You're being true to your heart. You're following your own path. You're doing whatever you want to do. And then therefore, you are just rising to new heights. But the reality was his life was coming apart at the seams. And so Jonah chapter 1 ends with those ominous words. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So what do you do when you're in the belly of a fish for three days and for three nights? Well, Jonah prays. You might say he finally prays. Because this missionary did not pray when God called him. He did not pray as to discern whether or not he should go. He did not pray as he entered the ship and the storm came upon them. He did not pray when the sailors threw him into the sea. And he did not pray as he was descending. He did not pray until he finally was swallowed by the great fish. And let's listen to his prayer. Jonah chapter 2 verses 1 to 9. It's on page 1437. If you're following along and the Bible's in front of you, if you're at home, uh, you can look it up on your device as well. Jonah chapter 2 verses 1 to 9. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me, from the depths of the grave I cried for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred, almost like a jail, me in, in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. To those who cling to worthless idols, they forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Now, this sounds like a different Jonah than Jonah chapter 1. Something has happened in his life. It's almost as if Jonah is saying, this fish was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. It saved my life. Now, we talked about Jonah sinking or him descending, and when we read the chapter, we get the sense that Jonah has hit the lowest point of his life. It's captured in the imagery that he uses in his prayer. He talks about these breakers that come again and again and again over him. And maybe you've had the experience of you're in a challenging season. It just seems you catch your breath and another challenge hits you. 
It feels like you've just barely got your footing and another one comes. Some of you have swam in the Bay of Fundy when the waves are large. You go out into the water, maybe you ride the waves into shore and you get up and as soon as you get up, a wave hits you and you kind of struggle to get up and just as you're getting your footing again, another wave hits you and knocks you down. This is what Jonah is talking about, his experience in life. Maybe that's been your experience. It's been challenge after challenge after challenge. And just as it seems, you're getting your footing. Something else comes up. There's another situation that challenges you. But Jonah is entering into this dark, dark space. He uses the language here. He talks about, um, if, imagine if the mountains, the highest of things in the world, had a root system. He's down at the roots. He's in the lowest place he can go. And not only that, he says, that there's, it's like there's a prison down at the very roots of the mountains and I'm locked in it forever. Have you ever felt this way? Kind of darkness closing in. Jonah had his eyes set on Spain and beautiful wide open spaces and sunny warm days, and now he's confined in a dark, solemn place. Maybe for you, the pandemic was that place. You had a life, you had hobbies, you had things you did, you had routines, and then you were at home. And you were at home for a really long time, going nowhere and doing nothing. And maybe even now, it's hard to get moving again. Maybe you know this experience because you're in a season of grief or loss or massive change in your life. And you don't know what to do. You don't know how to move forward. You're afraid to move forward. You don't want a new normal. You don't want to embrace the new reality of your life. And you, like Jonah, are kind of in this dark, cloistered space. I think of people who struggle with mental health problems who, like Jonah, their world got suddenly very small, they feel very alone, they feel cut off from people, and they're in a season of darkness. And as Jonah enters this space, he's all alone, he cries out to the Lord, and light shines in his darkness. Just as he settles in and he thinks, I've got no options, no freedom, I've got nobody, I'm all alone, I've, got, I've lost everything, suddenly he realizes that the only thing that he still has is God. That the only thing he still has is God. That in that moment, he realizes that I've been running and running and running and I've run right into his presence. The whole time I thought I was getting away from him, I was escaping his voice and his plan for me, only to realize he's been chasing me all along and he's right where I am. And in that moment, Jonah discovers that the very thing he's been running for is the beautiful thing that his very soul needs. And I know for some people today, maybe you're in a season of darkness as well. And even as you read through those words in Jonah chapter 2, maybe they express a little bit of what you've been feeling or you know someone in your life. That those are the words that kind of capture their experience in their life. So actually, I'm gonna, we're going to stop just for a moment. I'm going to take a moment. And I want you to think about people in your life who are living in a season of darkness who've just been battered by life. They've had circumstance after circumstance after circumstance. And we're going to pray for them this morning. I'm going to put some words up on the screen for us to pray together. And I just want to pause here in this moment and acknowledge that this has been a difficult season for so many, and we're just going to pray for them. Would you join me as we pray? Our Lord, you who are merciful and kind, protect us this day, we pray, from the sorrows of love. Seize that this fish is not his death, but his salvation. That this was not the end, it's actually just the beginning 
and that this, in fact, is the best thing that could have ever happened to him. And we see this in the language that he uses. Now, you probably won't remember, but last week in chapter 1, verse 16, this exact same language was used by the pagan sailors. That when they came encounter with the Lord, they themselves, it says this, at this, the sailors greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So the people that the missionary is supposed to serve are the first people to repent, not the missionary. It's they worshipped before Jonah worshipped. They sacrificed before Jonah sacrificed. They made uh, a vow before Jonah made a vow. That as happy as we are as readers to see the point that maybe we're finally seeing some changes in Jonah's heart, we realize he's not the first to see this change. Actually, he's the last one to come to the table here. He's the one that changes and is the most resistant to God's grace in his life. And this message, I think, is important for you and I as the church today in 2023. Because remember, the theme of the book of Jonah, and we will get there, I promise, next week, when Jonah finally starts to preach, is that God has good news for lost and broken people. But in this little book, Jonah is showing us there's work to first be done in our own hearts. The missionaries, in the church, in the heart of the church, God has worked that he still needs to do in us before we go out to be missionaries. That if we want to go and convince the world of its lostness, if we want people to recognize their sin and see the beauty of Christ, then we must be also aware of our own lostness and our own sin. It's almost as if God is saying to Jonah, before you start preaching to those people, there's some grace work that needs to get done in your heart first and foremost. We cannot bring a message of salvation to a world that we have not experienced ourselves. We can't speak mercy to people if our heart is unmerciful. And God had work to do in Jonah's heart to purge him of his hatred of the Ninevites and give him a taste of the very grace that Jonah wanted him to tell the others about. You know, that weighs heavy on me as a church. That God wants us to experience the grace first and foremost that we are going to explain and share with other people. That as missionaries, which is how as a church we should see ourselves, we should never forget that God has first been merciful to us when we were running from the Lord, when we were trying to avoid Him at all costs, and only did we realize we ran right into His presence and there was mercy. In those moments in our lives when we feel that, you know what, I'll be most free if I can escape Him, only to discover it becomes a sinking experience and at the very bottom we find Him in mercy. That when we thought the world was crashing in all around us and everything was lost, all we had was God, and his mercy rescued us in that moment. And when this grace is fresh on our lives, we are now ready to be the missionaries that God has called us to be in the world. There's nothing worse than a missionary who does not know the grace of God themselves, or for whom it was in a memory from 25 years ago. It must be our recent experience that God is moving and shaping our hearts, purging it of anything that would keep us from being the people that he's called us to be to our hurting and broken world today. And so Jonah, ironically, is not the first person to experience that grace. 
And I think there's a word here for us. And so chapter 2 really deals with the heart of the people who are being sent, that is, you and I. And so I want us to be thinking about the mercy that we need today in our hearts. What is the condition of our hearts? What is the work that God needs to do to keep softening us, to be, keep converting us, to keep redeeming us so that we are ever sensitive in love and mercy towards other people, not in hatred and judgmentalism towards them? And chapter 2 ends very unceremoniously with Jonah being vomited onto the dry ground. And as we pick up chapter 3 next week, we'll see finally he gets around to doing what God had called him to do two chapters ago. We're going to close our service today as we think about the condition of our own hearts and our own experience with the mercy of God um, by singing a great song. Um, it was written by a gentleman by the name of Robert Robinson. He grew up in England. His dad died when he was young, so he had to go to work in a barber shop. He and his mom were, were very, very poor. In his teen years, he heard the preacher George Whitfield preaching, and he came face to face with the good news of the mercy of God for his life. He repented. He became a follower. He sensed God's call to go into ministry. He became a pastor. And in his years as a pastor, he went around to a number of churches, at one point pastoring a church of over a thousand people. But then something happened in Robinson's life. He left the ministry and he walked away from his faith. And he became kind of like a Jonah. One day he found himself on a stagecoach traveling through town with other passengers and to break the awkward silence, one of the women on the coach started to sing a hymn whose lyrics went like this. Come thou fount or source of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. O oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter or like a chain bind my wandering heart, my Jonah-like wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. As she finished singing this song, this young woman kind of was asked Mr. Robinson, you know, what do you think this song? Do you, do you know this song? And he replied, Madam, I am the unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to feel now as I felt then. Here is Mr. Robinson thinking he is running from the Lord only to run right into his merciful presence. Today, God's merciful presence is here for you and I to, to do the work in our hearts that needs to be done. Let us pray. God, today we thank you that you are the relentless pursuer of each one of us. And that no matter where we are today, whether we are doing well and things are great, whether we are just doing everything we can to avoid you, only to find that we run right into your presence, or whether today we feel like we are in a dark, confined, difficult space with relentless challenges. 
that, Lord, there is mercy for each one of us. And we pray today that you would take our hearts, that you would take our hearts, the center of who we are, and that you would seal them with your mercy so that we can experience that fresh renewal in each of our lives, we pray. Amen. Will you stand?